Father, we are indeed in awe and wonder of who you are. It is so amazing that you would love us, that you would create us, and that you would come to be among us and live in us, and that you would draw us to yourself. And today as we worship, we want to know you more, and we want to glorify you and honor you, and we pray that this will indeed be what happens in our worship this day. Thank you for being present with us. And we pray this and give thanks for who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do through Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. What a great joy to come together and to gather and worship today, and, and we're glad that you are here. A few things I want to highlight that are in your bulletin. Um, you'll notice that uh, Ladies Fall Gathering is taking place on the 29th, and sign-ups uh, begin today. You can sign up in the foyer, and there's information there about that gathering. We are still in, we have opportunities for you to be involved in ministry with children and youth, particularly on Wednesday nights. And if you are interested in knowing more about being involved in ministry on Wednesday nights uh, with children or with youth, we'd love to have you. There are some uh, sign-up forms in the back. You can contact the church office. Also, this is the last day to sign up for the nursery. And if you are interested in helping with the nursery, the schedule is going to be made right away tomorrow. So if you'd like to help, there there are also sign-up forms in the back. And uh, you can get those and you can drop them in the box and uh, we'll get you on the list. So if you're interested in helping with nursery, just note that today is the last day to do that. Uh, Tonight our small groups begin meeting. If you're not a part of a group or you're not sure uh, about the groups that are meeting, just talk to one of the pastors today and we'll help you get connected. Uh, The groups meet tonight. They also meet uh, a couple nights during the week as well. And as we begin this this fall series about looking at our family tree and our, our physical and spiritual history... Uh, the groups are also going to be tracking along with the people that we talk about on Sunday mornings. So there's some connection to that. So we'd love to have you be a part of a group. Koinonia meets tonight at 7 in Wesley Chapel. Next Sunday, we are again gathering for worship at 820, 940, and 11. And next week, we'll be talking about um, uh, the, uh, the Tamar and the story that uh, we have of her in Genesis 38. And thinking about the times in life when we feel desperate and uh, the, the needs that come to us. And we see that in her. Uh, Wednesday evening is uh, the registration for our children's ministries on Wednesday night, and you see information in the bulletin about that. Number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, things related to us here, as well as things around the world. This has been a, a, a very uh, difficult week of uh, tragedy and uh, violence, and there's a lot of things happening in our world, it continues to happen, and we pray for God's grace in miraculous and powerful ways among us. At this time, we will ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
contemplate the greatness of God and as we hear his invitation to bring before him the burdens and the concerns of our hearts. We want to spend a few moments praying together and if you would like to come and use the altar rail as your place of prayer, please join me. Heavenly Father, as we gather today, we are reminded of your greatness. You've created all that is, that you rule over everything. You are the sustainer and the provider of all that we have and experience and know. And we're reminded of how unworthy we are. Lord, sometimes the the most appropriate thing we can do is just to admit the truth about ourselves. That we're people who struggle to live as we ought, to treat each other as we know we should and as we want to be treated. To care and to love and to be patient and to be gentle and to speak the truth, to be your people in this world. Father, forgive us that we fight about such petty things. We keep grasping for stuff that in a moment is gone. Sometimes we we hurt each other. We hurt the people we love the most. We're controlled by habits that we know are wrong. We keep doing things that destroy us. And Father, today, 
we come before you and we acknowledge our sin. And we ask that you will forgive us. Father, we think about people who are struggling today. Struggling with illness. We ask you to heal them. Think of people who are struggling with grief. And we pray for your mercy and comfort and power in their lives. We pray for all who are dealing with relationships that are broken. For everyone who is struggling with pain and hurt. We pray for your healing grace. Lord, we pray for this world and this week we have seen the tragedy of, of humans hurting each other. We pray, Father, that you will bring peace to this world of violence. We pray, Father, that you will help us in the midst of the, the, the reactions and the uprisings in the Middle East. Father, help us to love, not to hate. Help us to be sensitive to the struggles of your children instead of the offenses that we may feel or incur. Help us to care more about speaking the truth in love and compassion and grace than in power. And Father, we pray that in the midst of of these difficulties, we pray that your people us and others would bear witness to your truth, to your love, to your mercy, your compassion, your grace. Father, we thank you for, for a good time during Christian Life Emphasis Week. And we pray that for all the decisions that were made, for all of the, the, the commitments that were made, we pray that you would solidify those and that you would work miraculously as you alone are able to do. Keep us, Lord, close to you. Bond us together in your spirit. Let our light shine as Christ shines in us. And we pray all of this in the name and power and through the grace of Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is uh, selected passages from Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. This is the word of the Lord. stand as we sing.
Father, we want to give you the highest praise today. We pray that as we do, our hearts will be open to let you work in us as you desire. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you have ever done research on your family? Okay. Anybody, uh, anybody, you know, gotten back more than 100, 200 years, 200 years? A few people? Okay. I was looking up this week that, um, you know, Ancestry.com is probably the largest uh, website for people who want to do family uh, background, family tree, history. They have almost 2 million subscribers to that website. And these are people who pay a fair amount of money to, to get on there and to get the information they have. There is, there is, you know, I'm asking myself, why do we do that? Some of you may have watched the television show the last few years. That I think it was NBC did Who Do You Think You Are, which is an interesting title. But, it, but it's all about trying to, it's, you know, they take... Famous people, and they show them something about their family background that they didn't know. I think one of the more interesting episodes was Helen Hunt, actress, as it was revealed to her that her great-great-grandmother was one of the leaders in the state of Maine of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And when she first heard that, she sort of was taken back and a little bit appalled by that, uh, because that's not a part of her mindset, uh, temperance. But then she began to understand more about why her, her grand, great-grandmother did that. And it was, she read some of the writings and she said, you know, it's because so many of the men in their community uh, have a problem with alcohol. And, and they then take it into the family. And women and children are being hurt and neglected. And it's causing all kinds of family and societal problems. And you could see her eyes kind of light up as she began to understand that really at heart... She had the same passions about things that her great-great-grandmother did. There is something about understanding our roots that helps us to understand a little bit more about who we are. Now, the problem with that, and when you start getting into your history, is that some of the people you find, you want to, you want to make a billboard and proclaim, I'm related to them. Other people... Maybe not so much. And I suspect we all have some of both. We all have some people in our family lineage that we're proud of and we're excited to tell people about. But we also have some people we just as soon ignore. But that's family. And, and over the next course of the next couple of months, we're going to be thinking about our spiritual family tree. We're going to be looking at some people in the scriptures. Many of them are people that might not be as familiar to you as some others. But people who who are a part of our spiritual heritage, whether we like it or not. And some of the people we encounter are going to be people that we will champion and say, wow, I'm so glad that they're in our background. And others we're going to say, really, why would God put those people in the scriptures? But the truth of the matter is, as we start looking at these people... If we're honest, they look a lot like us. And we can see ourselves in them if we're willing to do so. Now, of course, you start talking about not just the spiritual family. You're talking about physical family. I mean, you have to start with Adam and Eve, right? I mean, that's where it all began. And, and honestly, that's where it all went awry. The story of Adam and Eve, I suspect, is pretty familiar to most of us. As God plants them, creates them, puts them in the garden in this, in this perfect place. And, and it's a story we read. They reject God and there are all kinds of consequences from that. And from those decisions, it affected their family. As the very, their two, one of their sons murders another son. And it affects the, the whole world as we've been dealing with the chaos of that from that time. I remember when I was maybe... I don't know, six or seven years old, 
we were on vacation up at my grandparents in Michigan. And in the middle of that vacation, my dad got really sick. And he went to the hospital and they found out that he had acute appendicitis. And he needed surgery. And, you know, as as a little child, you're a little bit fearful of that, not quite sure what's happening. But it's one of those things, this memory I have implanted in my mind of standing around my dad's hospital bed. And it would really, those days, children weren't allowed in hospital, but they let us in for a few minutes. And my dad laying there, agony and pain, saying, oh, Eve, why did you eat that apple? (laughs) Well, the truth of the matter is, we don't really know what the fruit was that Eve ate. The only fruit that's mentioned in there are figs, as fig leaves, actually. But, and there's some speculation that maybe the apple came to be connected with that, because uh, the, Greek, the Latin word for evil, malice, sounds a lot like the Latin word for apple, malum. And maybe that connection was made. We really don't know. But the, the reality is the apple has symbolized the Garden of Eden and that event for centuries. And when we see that, when we see an apple, it comes to our mind. That's one of the reasons that Ted Murphy put up. If you haven't, I encourage you to look at this. But Ted Murphy put a, it's a small painting that he did of an apple. And through the course of these weeks, we're going to be putting up things that connect us with what we're talking about. But we go back to Adam and Eve, and and we, we see there what happens with the decisions that they make and how it affects our family. And ever since that moment, we have been living with imperfect families. From that moment, our imperfect families that we all live in have skewed our images of God, of ourselves, of each other. I mean, in, at the end of chapter 2, the writer tells us that Adam and Eve, before they sin, they, they exist in the garden. They're naked and they're unashamed. One writer says that, that they don't shame each other. In that moment, at that time, they look at each other with love and nothing else. There's no suspicion. There's no trust issues. There's no manipulation, no self-centeredness. It's, it's just love for each other. It's mutual respect. But the moment they sin, all of that changes. It changes their perspective toward God. When God appears to them, comes to see them, as he does every day in the cool of the evening, what do they do? They run and hide. Because now, instead of seeing God as their friend, as their creator, as the one who loves them, now they see God as one to be afraid of and to fear. It certainly affects them. I mean, when God says to Adam, what's going on here? What does Adam do? He throws Eve under the bus just like that. Hey, the woman you gave me, she's the one who gave it to me. And and that begins this this destroying of a relationship that that was perfect and now is no more. And God says the consequences of their sin is going to affect their relationship and the relationship of family and of people together. For Eve, and for actually for both of them, for Eve it's childbearing, for Adam it's it's working the ground. But two things that that were intended to bring great joy to them and and to produce and to help multiply all the things God has blessed them with now become things of great pain and struggle and agony. And their relationship is not the same. God says to Eve, you will, you will yearn for your husband. That, that void in your heart now, you're going to think that your husband can fill that. And you're going to do everything in your power to try to convince him to fill that. And how's he going to respond Not with love, but with power, domination. And now the relationship in the home becomes one of who can control things. Who's in control? Who's got the power? Who can manipulate enough to get what they want? And in one way or another, all of us are the products of homes like that. Because we all, there are no perfect people, so there are no perfect homes. 
And one way or another, we are the result of that. And we often, and we do, we perpetuate that into our own families and into our own relationships, even in the church. How can I get what I want? How can I get my way? How can I maintain control? And it becomes about power instead of love. What's so fascinating about this story as you come in, in Genesis 3 and you have all this agony and pain and struggle and in the middle of it, in verse 15, God gives hope. And he says, yeah, there's going to be enmity, but there's also going to be one to come who is going to crush your enemy. And we know from this side of it that Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to what God proclaims here. That Christ is the one who comes and he comes to heal. I'm, I've been intrigued for a long time that in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stands up for the first time in his hometown synagogue and he has a chance to say whatever he wants to say to the people, he says, I have come to heal. I've come to release prisoners. I've come to set captives free. I've come to heal people who are in need. And it fascinates me that over and over and over again, the stories that we have of Jesus with people relate to healing. Setting people free. Freeing them from the bondage that that enslaves them. And Jesus comes to heal. To heal our homes. To heal our churches. To heal our relationships. And how does he do that? I think for one thing, he comes to heal by setting us free from the chains of unrealistic expectations that we live with about family. You see, there's something in the back of our minds, despite what we know is true, despite the fact that we know no one is perfect, something in the back of our minds wants to believe that if we just work hard enough, our family could be perfect. Or we think, or we look back at our own family and the way that we were raised, and we think, if only my parents were better. If only my family was, was more connected. If only my parents were more perfect. And we hang on to that, and it changes us in these unrealistic expectations. Because, see, we live in our expectations. That, that's, how we, that's how we live in the world. We're disappointed. Why? Because something we expected to happen didn't. And you magnify that significantly when the expectations we have are unrealistic. And perfection is unrealistic. See, the truth of the matter is every family is dysfunctional. Even the best of families are dysfunctional. Because there are no perfect families. Because there are no perfect people. And we're all in some level or another dysfunctional. Now granted, there are, there, there are degrees of dysfunction. And we recognize those pretty easily. We recognize the dysfunction in families of divorce and of abuse and, and of mental illness. And we recognize that and we see the damage of that. And sometimes we think, well, that's, that's just, that, that's dysfunction. But the truth is, none of us are perfect. I, mean, I grew up in a home that was that was deeply deeply religious. I mean, we we were a home of committed people committed to Christ. Generations of people committed to Christ. And I said before, I I think I'm the eleventh minister in my family, from just beginning with my grandparents. And you know, I, I tell people, you know, when we get together, got together for family reunions, the only argument we had was who was going to say grace over the meal. You know, who gets to pray? But that's not really true. Because the truth of the matter is, despite how committed to Christ our family is, we're not perfect. There's stuff that my grandparents didn't do right that affected both of my parents. And there's things that my parents didn't do right that affected me and my sisters. And there's things that I don't do right and we don't do right that affect our children and my cousins and and all of us. When we get together, you know, we talk about those things. And the, 
But something in us wants to believe that maybe we could be perfect. Maybe we should have been perfect. And those unrealistic expectations, as we hang on to them, they just create frustration and more frustration that leads to anger, that leads to bitterness, that leads to to relationships that are torn apart. Because something in us says, if we just work harder, if we just do more, then we can have thing we can have a perfect existence and the truth is that doesn't create that kind of mindset doesn't create better families it creates worse families because now we've just raised the expectations that much more and people who tend to have have issues with you know with with violence and with anger often are dealing with unrealistic expectations and we do that in our families And honestly, we do that in the church. You know, we have this mindset that the church ought to be perfect. That we ought to be able to come to church and we don't hurt each other. We don't don't do things to, to make each other struggle. But again, we're all imperfect. And you put us all together and we're going to create imperfection. One of the most freeing things in the world for me was to begin to understand that the church should be understood not in the context of a country club, but a hospital. It's not the, the, the point is not that, that we've got this country club where everybody pays their dues and everybody joins in and it's all taken care of and everything is beautiful and perfect. It's a hospital. And hospitals are messy. And hospitals are for people who are sick. And Jesus says, I've come for people who are sick. And Paul writes to the Romans and says, everybody has sinned. Everybody's fallen short of God's glory. And the sooner we come to grips with that, the sooner we will release these unrealistic expectations that we all need and should be perfect. That's not an excuse to say, just do whatever you want. We hurt each other and it doesn't matter. It's actually the first step in freeing us to be the kind of family in our homes and in our church that God's called us to be. Because the next step, once you begin to let go of those expectations, then you begin to see that we have a role to play in all of this. And we begin to understand that what God is, what, what we, Christ heals us, not just by releasing us those unrealistic expectations, but also by challenging us and calling us to mirror his strategy for healing. And how does Christ heal us? Is it through, through force, through power? Does he use strong-arm tactics? No, it's through the cross. It's through death. It's through surrender. And the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the nature of a servant, And humbled himself in human form. And being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. And if we want to see healing take place. In our families. In our church. It's about having the mind of Christ. It's about committing ourselves. To things like forgiveness. And gentleness. And patience and truth and compassion. And instead of how can I get my way, it becomes how can I help other people experience what they need. Instead of self centeredness, it becomes self sacrifice. Instead of what can people do for me, it's what can I do for others. Because see, our natural human instinct is control. The Garden of Eden. Our natural human instinct is to blame and to shame other people so that we look better. And to manipulate people so we can get what we want. We do it in our homes. We do it in the church. Let's just be honest about it. It's our natural human response. And Christ is calling us to take on his mind and his spirit and his strategy of winning by losing. 
You know, we live in a, in a society, in a world that's just continually divided. I know we're not, I see this more and more as the, as the political process moves toward the, the presidential election in a couple of months. And we may not be fighting a civil war like we did in the 19th century, but we are certainly fighting as a culture and society with each other. And it's becoming more and more bitter and acrimonious. And it's not limited to, to the political realm. We have this mindset in the church that, that we have to get our way because we need to do what we want to do. And we've forgotten as the people of God that our calling in this world is not to win, it's to love. Jesus doesn't say, they'll know you're my, my disciples if you win the battles. He says, you'll know my, you're my disciples if you love each other. And the only way to truly win is to love and to take on the strategy of Christ in our homes, in our church. It's interesting to me that the whole idea of family is something that God established and created and planned from the very beginning. You know, it, it's not a post-fall kind of thing where God says, well, this whole thing hasn't worked out, so I guess I better create family. He says to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And he creates Eve, and out of that becomes family. And, and out of family, the earth is, is populated. And, and the same thing is true of the church. And God, I think Christ works his healing in us when we... When our commitment to family is continually strengthened. Because the most natural reaction to family, when we get into problems and difficulties, whether it's our homes or the church, the most natural reaction is to try to run. Just like Adam and Eve do with God. Let's get away from this difficulty. You know, this is too tough. This is too difficult. This is too much pressure. It's too much stress. I'm not comfortable. This is pushing me too much. I suspect that's one of the reasons why God created family and why God creates the church as family. Because only in the context of stress and pressure do we realize how weak we are and how much we need God. Because without that pressure, without that stress, we're just going to go on our merry way. Everything's fine. We'll do what we want and everything's working out great. But the minute we enter into intimate relationships with people... There's going to be imperfections. There's going to be difficulties. And the truth of the matter is, we're going to hurt each other. And how do we respond to that? Are we committed to our families in such a way that we stick with it? Now granted, there are some situations that are, that are dangerous and we need to get out of them. And that's true in the homes. And there are, there are Situations even in the church where it's spiritually dangerous for us to stay in a setting and we need to remove ourselves from it. Those things happen and we need to be aware of that. But most of the time, it's really not so much danger as it is self-centeredness. I want what I want. And we do it in the church. And we do it in our homes. And all the while, God is calling us to something deeper that can only happen as we're challenged to understand relationships in a deeper way, to commit ourselves to other people. And that's hard. But we realize we're in this thing together. It's, it's like in the family where, you know, you've got that uncle who has this 40-year collection of bobbleheads and they're all over his house. And, you know, when you walk in and it's, they're just everywhere and it's, it's just eccentric written all over it. That's family. And whether we like it or not, he's a part of us. Or that aunt that has 27 cats and, and they run the house. That's family. And they're a part of us. And in the church, we may have different political views. We may have different theological views. We may see things from completely different perspectives. But we're family. And we're committed to each other. And we're in this thing together. And maybe, just maybe, God has brought us together with such different ideas and different things, different ways of seeing things 
Because we need to be challenged to love people who might be difficult for us to love. Because how else are we going to become more and more like Christ than to face those challenges and to choose the way of the cross? And that brings us to this table. This table is really a, the meal of, of, of God's family coming together and eating what he's prepared. We're coming together from all of our diverse lives, from all of our diverse ways of thinking, from all the diverse gifts and abilities and things that we do. We come together in this place and we hear the Father saying, come together and eat what I've prepared. Come together and be family and gather around the table because I have a gift for you that's going to stir your hearts and feed your souls, not just as individuals, but as family. And we come to this table with all of our diversity, with all of our struggles, with all of our pain. And we hear God saying, come and join in my supper that I've prepared for you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need you to heal our families. We need you to heal our church. And we pray that you will give to each of us a new awareness, a deeper desire to see ourselves and our families at home and here from your perspective and through your eyes. Father, for some of us, we may be far away from our family. Let this become our family. Let this become our home where together we grow in you through the grace of Christ. We pray your anointing upon the bread and the cup of which we're about to partake. We pray that it will be food for our souls and our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our relationships. And let us eat with thanksgiving for the blessing of family in all of its forms. We pray this through Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intention. which means to dip in. As you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open for prayer. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, we have a tray in the back. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. We're going to receive communion this morning by this mode because I think it's significant for us to, to watch each other as we take communion. And to see each other walk to the front and to walk back to our seats and and to walk past each other and to remember that we're all connected. We're all in this together. We're family.
And even if this is the first time you have ever been here for worship, we're part of the family of God. And you're invited to come and to receive these gifts from the gracious and loving hands of our Heavenly Father through Christ. wondrous love is this oh my soul what wondrous love is this oh my soul what wondrous love is this that caused the lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul to bear the dreadful curse for my soul Wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, that caused the Lord of life to lay aside his crown for my soul, to Join us as we sing to God and to the Lamb. I will sing to God and to the Lamb. I will sing to God and to the Lamb, who is the great I am. While millions join the theme, I will sing. While millions join the
you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.